Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Katie Osuna, host and creator of Copper and Heat Podcast, based in Oakland, California. And we talk about craft mac and cheese. We talk about her anthropology degree. And she reflects on being a woman in restaurants. Thanks as always for listening. Enjoy. Your origin story, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Tell us what Coeur d'Alene was really all about growing up. Well, I mean, for people who don't know, Coeur d'Alene is up in northern Idaho, um, pretty close to the Canadian border near like Spokane, Washington. Um, so pretty tiny. It's like 35,000 people. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up there. And I mean, there there's not a whole lot of like what we would think of as fine dining or anything remotely similar to that, but there's still a lot of really great food <laughs> and like food culture. And a lot of people just really love to get together around food. And my family was definitely that kind of family. So my, my dad's side of the family lives there and my grandma. Um, so she's one of the people that probably inspired me the most to get into cooking just because she was a fantastic cook. The thing is, is that my brother and I were the most picky eaters. We would not eat anything that didn't come out of a box. I like refused to eat her homemade mac and cheese. When I was little, I would only eat Kraft mac and cheese. Um, and even though she was this fantastic cook, she would just like, you know, buy whatever chicken nuggets, frozen chicken nuggets and have like fish sticks and stuff for us whenever we came over. And um, it wasn't until later that she started you know, trying to make new things for us. And I don't know, I was probably in like high school, early on in high school when I started actually learning to cook from her um, and realizing like, oh, I actually kind of like cooking. I am so inspired and sad right now at the same time. Like <laughs> grandma being yeah. a great cook, you say mac and cheese. I'm, I'm like, hell yes. Uh, and yeah. It, but this is the thing. It's, it's our story. However we find our way through food is super interesting. Like with my two young sons, I talk about being picky eater. I was like, we're not picky, we're particular. And there's a difference. We have a rule that you try everything, you don't have to like everything. And so I think I'm mm -hmm. interested in that dynamic early on. What was your grandmother's name? Uh, Roberta. I'm also interested in Coeur d'Alene, so a, a couple things. Yeah. I kind of could sense how you sheepishly said there's not really fine dining because I think going on the path you did of, you know, working at places like Manresa and, and you know, those, yeah. those, all those Michelin stars – the expectation becomes very, very different. However, mm -hmm. I just love when we have a food thing. Whatever your food thing is, doesn't matter. Fine dining was born out of peasant food. So I think sometimes we forget yeah. about that. And totally. I think it's, it's really great when you just, you have a thing and hey, people in the Midwest have casseroles and everything goes in the casserole, but <laughs> damn it, it's their casserole and they're gonna make it the best and they make it every single time and it becomes so nostalgic. So I can always, always appreciate that 
I grew up Idaho, kind of went to fine dining route. And like, I mean, I, I'm not that old, but like, as I've gotten older, it's kind of like, you know, cook what you want to cook and it doesn't really matter. And fine dining is kind of, it's got its place. It's got its thing, but like, I'm much more interested in all the other kinds of food right now than fine dining. <laughs> so anyway, that's, yeah, exactly to your point. I'm um, with you hundred percent. I've talked about that on this show and I talk about a lot, the memories and the experience and the stories may be different when I've gone to three Michelin stars than when I get a dumpling that costs $3 and a nickel. However, quite often I get the same feeling. My skin tingles in the same way mm -hmm. when I have that bite versus the $300 mm -hmm. per person bite of food. And so I yeah. think it's very, very interesting. It's important for us to remember that. And I think it's again, because they're delivering mm -hmm. on like who they are. That's truly represents them. And I think that's, what's really mm -hmm. compelling about it. And then I can appreciate kind of where you're coming from, which kind of led me into another thing. It was interesting. Talk to me about Thai food a little bit, because now I'm hearing you and I was reading some of the things you have in your fridge. And, and then you said that you're <laughs> super into Thai right now. And I was like, okay, yeah. so craft mac and cheese to like geeking out on on thai give us a give us a little yeah. bit of that what's, what's thai food mean to you right now um thai food's been pretty recent just because so i worked with um this this gal at manresa we just barely overlap like when i was staging there she was a, a line cook or one of the chef de parties her name's lalita we overlapped just barely and um right around when we were starting copper and heat uh, she was starting to do pop-ups in Santa Cruz and she was, she needed some help. And so I started helping her out with some of her pop-ups and, and it's just exploded down there. Um, so she was just doing one-off here and there pop-ups and, and working out of Santa Darius, which is a brewery down there. And I think she was doing it like once a month or maybe every other week. And it just kind of grew and grew. And now she's there every Monday and she has like all these catering gigs and she's working on getting a brick and mortar of her own down there in Santa Cruz because she wants to be in Santa Cruz. Um, and she's originally from Thailand. And so she's doing just all, all this Thai food and she's really been like educating herself on, on Thai food. And even though she grew up there, she moved to the States when she was really young. And, and so she's still kind of trying to educate herself on, all different kinds of, not just Thai, but like Laotian food as well and different like regional cuisines. So I've been vicariously learning through her <laughs> about Thai food. And like, I hadn't, that's the other thing about growing up in Idaho is like, there's not a lot of cuisine that isn't, um, I mean, there, there, it's starting to be a little bit more now, but it's a lot of very like Americanized Thai bamboo, like big box chains. Um, and so I hadn't really had anything that wasn't Pad Thai. And that's something that Lolita says a lot is like, I, I like, she, I think she's made Pad Thai like once or twice in the last two years. Like she just, she wants to do all these other kinds of things. And so just learning, learning about all those other dishes has been really interesting. And now I'm obsessed and can't stop eating it. Everybody listening, the more people you meet, the more you travel, the more you taste, the more you experience, the more open that you become. And so I just love hearing that somebody like Lolita is inspiring you mm -hmm. around her personal culture and her connection to it through food because that's what it is food is like the medium for us to connect right i always mm -hmm. talk about like if you if you want to uh, get me to think differently or or 
talk to me about a difficult subject, feed me and I'm super open. Yeah. I, I will listen to just about anything. I thought that was really great and uh, we need more and more of that. All right, I wanna go to something totally. I'm always fascinated with is how we find our way into the industry. And especially for somebody like you that was on a completely different path. You mm-hmm. were anthropology and sociology, which clearly is a obvious segue to working at a three Michelin star restaurant. Makes total sense to me, right? <laughs> You know, talk about a place to, to yeah. people watch and experience people at their very best and their very worst. Very you're, on this, you're on this more collegiate path, this, and, and then you segue. Talk about why anthropology uh-huh. and sociology and then why make the move towards food. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went into college. I wanted to do something I mean, I, it wasn't really that much of a jump for me in my head. It makes sense in my head, but it was kind of like a meandering path trying to figure it out. Um, I went into college thinking I wanted to, to do something around like social justice, environmental sustainability, something like that. So I, I was kind of looking at environmental studies degrees, but I took an anthropology class and, and at the like urging of one of my counselors, I was like, maybe you would be interested in doing this. So I took an Anthro 101 class and I was like, damn, yeah, this is sweet. This is awesome. I love this. So that's kind of how I ended up in anthropology. It was kind of by accident, but I, at the same time, was getting the college that I was at was a liberal arts college. So I was also doing environmental studies and a minor in um, journalism. So I had like all these other things kind of going on. The main reason that I I went to the college that I did was because it was small, but it also had this uh, organic garden that was run by students and this whole like sustainability program. So I immediately got involved in that. And having been raised by two very, very busy parents um, where we like ate out a lot and ate a lot of like frozen things, um, coming to college and making food from a garden that I'd grown myself was like what the fuck? Like, holy shit, this is completely different than what I grew up with. Yeah. So I I just started kind of experimenting with things and I was still kind of picky or particular, but um, much less so going into college and making things on my own and kind of exploring food and food movements through college. And I think my junior year, um, I was deciding uh, what to do if I was going to do this like honors senior thesis, which was like I, this huge paper that I could decide whether or not to do for my anthropology major. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this. And I want to do it about food and food movements and comparing what food and food culture looks like in two different countries. And so I chose cheese. <laughs> so like the cheese product would be really interesting to see how it's made in two different places. Um, so I ended up working on a couple cheese farms in Idaho, and then I went to Italy and lived in Calabria for a summer and very agricultural, agricultural rural part of Italy and worked on a cheese farm there. And so I was doing like production work. So that was kind of my first foray into actually making food. It was just kind of on the agriculture farming side and producing cheese. It was just kind of, to me, it made sense. That path, that whole path made sense. You know, I wanted to do something that like helped people and I wanted to learn about systems and culture and just kind of found my way toward food. The, the you know, the study of humans, right? And, and mm-hmm, communities mm-hmm. and cultures. And so you were looking at it through that lens and then just connecting the dots yeah. through how they interacted mm-hmm. with their food and their food systems and their agriculture. So that makes, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. When, yeah. when you're thinking about it, because talk about, uh, I mean, every culture is connected to food in one way mm-hmm. 
or another. So I really, really like mm -hmm. that. You mentioned the cheese making and being on the farms, 19 in college, <laughs> yeah. working on a goat farm. I'm fascinated in that. And, and this is going to go right into perfect segue into we always like to play these best served on icebreaker games. And I want to play one of our trading places game fromage edition because I want to geek out on cheese. Can we do that? Great. Yeah. I love it. Everyone listening might get value out of this. And I always joke about it, but really I do this selfishly because I want to <laughs> siphon off wisdom from my guests to be able to try and, you know, up my game. So mm -hmm. first, say a little about the game and then I want to get some background on the goat farm. So what we're going to do okay. is I actually going to mention a few iconic cheese dishes and you're going to tell us the cheeses that you would use and maybe a couple cheeses that we could do to even elevate some of these humble simple dishes like a mac and cheese that grandma made even though you had to have the craft. <laughs> I appreciate that now I'm sure it's a whole different ball game for you. Really really interested in the goat farm. I went to this tiny goat cheese farm. Um, it was run by this woman, Karen Evans. It's, unfortunately, they're no longer making cheese. And I'm really sad about it because it was easily the best goat cheese I've ever had in my life. Um, she's still in Boise, but she no longer has her goat cheese operation. It was just her and one assistant making the cheese. When I met her, it was just, I want to say it was just a few months after her husband died. And it was just her and her husband that were running this company together. And her husband was on the animal side, you know, really, he was really focused on animal husbandry and she was making the cheese. And um, so he had just passed away. And so she, it was kind of this big point of turmoil in her life. She was just like powering through and she, both, both her and her husband were artists. They, they went to college for artists. They were art teachers. Actually, her husband was like friends with some of the College of Idaho where I went to school, some of the professors in art there. And so they were like ceramicists and painters. And so that's how she approached cheese making. They loved Italian and French cheeses. And so that's kind of where her inspiration came from. Yeah, the whole process, watching her make cheese and kind of design just each little piece like it wasn't a big operation so she had her eyes on everything not even just making the cheeses but from the very moment that the goats are born like everything was just very particular magical like you said it was just magic to kind of watch this happen and I started out helping in the cheese room but then I ended up roaming more towards the animals just because the baby goats are the cutest thing in the world and so I would just like get up at four o'clock in the morning, drive an hour outside of Boise to go to, to Parma and, and feed baby goats <laughs> and then maybe spend some time in the cheese room later. But um, it was just kind of magic to watch, watch the whole process. And the cheese was fucking great. <laughs> I like that you got to connect all the way back to even the animal husbandry going on. What a respect mm -hmm. you have then for the whole ecosystem because that cheese is such a labor of the entire process. Yeah. I can appreciate that. You're, you're really tasting the terroir of it, which I think is an interesting thing in, oh, in, yeah. in cheese for sure is the terroir of it. I need you to help me. Here's a couple admissions. I am a huge okay. fan of cheese, generally speaking. I will spend <laughs> entirely too much money. Actually, Betsy will spend entirely too much money buying cheese. <laughs> just kind of the cheese we have for a quesadilla or a mac and cheese or a grilled cheese like ends up not being we just kind of buy whatever and so it's like really polarizing mm -hmm. and so i need <laughs> i need to spend maybe less money on blue cheeses and geeky stuff and maybe more money on my day-to-day -day cheeses that's kind of how i'm feeling so i need your help you're talking about goat cheese <laughs> i mean disclaimer here really quick i also do that 
I buy Swiss cheese from Trader Joe's for my quesadillas a lot of times. So disclaimer, but I, can't, I there are some other ones that you can get that are really good. <laughs> Understood. Well, give us, give us the truth on what you're doing currently, and then maybe we'll help each other and both of us might end up coming out of this with more cheeses. I mean, look, there's, there's no mm -hmm. wrong, there's no wrong cheese. There's no wrong way to eat there's cheese. There's no wrong cheese. There's never <laughs> so wrong way to eat cheese. we're talking about goat cheese. We're talking about Chev a little bit. So the classic beet salad yeah. at Chev or goat cheese. Talk to us about that a little bit and maybe give us some ideas of cheeses to utilize on a beet salad. I was thinking about Karen's, one of Karen's cheeses. So she made this kind of semi-aged, semi-dried chev that I don't remember how long she, she held it for, but then um, she covered it in wax. And so it had this like really, it was still kind of hard. It wasn't like the goat cheese that you would find in a log at a grocery store. It was harder than that, but it was still so creamy, so creamy and just kind of like coated your mouth when you ate it. Um, I'm just like, my mouth is salivating talking about it right now. But so the one specifically that I was thinking of is she, she put lavender and anise in it. So I think, I think at least once, maybe multiple times I, I, well, I was paid in cheese with her, which was great. And so I brought that home and we made various kinds of salads with it. And that one was like walnut and, and beets. Oh, so good. Maybe some arugula. It's, really really good obviously her cheese does not exist anymore um findings there there are these like little jars of marinated goat cheese buttons that i've seen around and they have that same texture and sometimes there's like peppers in there sometimes there's like rosemary and garlic i think that would be really good on the beat you kind of got thematic there at the end with the fact that goat cheese is really good at taking on adjunct flavors adjunct ingredients yeah that's a nice unlock there. Try goat cheeses that have different profiles added to them. I'm into that. All right. You specifically said that you in your house at all times have all the fixing for quesadillas. <laughs> yes, we always have everything for quesadillas. The cheese right now that we always have is just like Swiss from a grocery store, usually Trader Joe's. Sometimes we'll get provolone, but when I'm getting real fancy with my quesadillas, I'll get the the either the queso oaxaqueño, the like the stretched curd cheese that's from Mexico, or just like straight up fresh mozzarella. And the texture of those is like unreal in a quesadilla. It's so good one way to kind of up your quesadilla game is just fresh fresh mozzarella that you could get at any store or this is going to sound really weird but it's really good and maybe it won't sound weird maybe people are like this isn't weird katie stop saying that so i when we went to visit his his family my husband's family in, in boise last time we made these things um that are called enchiladas potosinas which are like stuffed tortilla things that are deep fried um that are very specific to a certain um, place in mexico his mom filled them with like this tomato jalapeno feta situation, just kind of mashed all of that together and, and put that in the tortilla. When I'm really craving like an interesting take on a quesadilla, I'll just do that between two corn tortillas and uh, it's really good. So some feta. Gotta yeah, talk about mac and my cheese. My favorite food. I mean, it's like, it's its own food group. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that mac and cheese, you mentioned it from Kraft mac and cheese, to a baked mm -hmm. mac and cheese in the casserole that I mentioned to lobster mac and cheese for $38 and everything in between. So <laughs> let, yeah. pontificate on uh, mac and cheese <laughs> for a moment for us. 
my very, very first recipe that I like taught myself how to make, my parents got me this book. It was like best home and gardens, like junior cookbook or something. So the first thing I learned how to make out of that, the first time that I ever ate mac and cheese that was not craft was just making pasta and then putting like milk and American cheese and stirring it together. And that was my first mac and cheese. I don't eat that as much anymore. <laughs> If ever. I like to say as much anymore. I, I, I now <laughs> I will admit a guilty pleasure of mine that like every once in a while, I just want a Velveeta shells and cheese. Like, it's about like I mean, once, yeah. once a year or twice a year. But, and, and Betsy goes, what are you doing? It's like, I don't know. I just, I just feel like I need this in my <laughs> life right now. You. Maybe it just gives me some context for the highfalutin, fancy shit that i think that i that i'm supposed to be eating and sometimes this brings me back yeah. down to earth i don't know what it is but it's yep. real yeah and it's like it's nostalgia for me and like i i don't think i don't i hadn't remembered the last time that i bought american cheese i like i hadn't bought american cheese in forever but then my husband and i decided to make the specifically the kidoba queso for super bowl and um, it had to have American cheese in it. So we bought American cheese. We had a bunch left over. And I'm like, well, what the hell do I do with all this now? And I'm like, I'm making mac and cheese. <laughs> so it was American cheese and Monterey Jack and some like nice cheddar. <laughs> it was actually great. So you have that version. Give us maybe a, an idea of <laughs> that cheeses that you really like that maybe have that nice melting point that aren't going to break on you. What are a yeah. couple other cheeses you're thinking about when you potentially think about mac and cheese? Um, I love Beamster. I don't know if you've had that one, but it's amazing. It's pretty sh yes. Oh, so good. That was one that I, the first time I tried it was working in a restaurant down here in the Bay area and it, we were putting it into these like little um, cream puff fougeres. Oh, damn. And so I was like, Ooh, this would make a good Mac. Um, and it did. It made a really good Mac because <laughs> it, it's got like that sharp tanginess kind of, but it melts really nicely. Yeah. I love talking cheese. <laughs> love talking to somebody who's so passionate about cheese thanks for playing a fun little trading places fromage edition i love the way you talk so glowingly about your grandmother about karen who is somebody else that's really impacted you professionally over as you've gotten into the restaurants as you've gone off the deep end and said fuck mm -hmm. it i'm going into restaurants which is crazy technically it was my first job out of college i guess so i i worked in the restaurant my senior year of college and then I left that restaurant to go work at a nonprofit and we did um, food service job training with um, refugees and other people who had barriers to employment and placed them in the food service industry and in various jobs. And um, I worked with this woman who's still one of my dear friends. Her name's Michelle Kwok. And um, she was, I mean, she kind of did a little bit of everything as you do in a nonprofit, but she was, um, she had like gone to school and been a teacher and then speaking of like a crazy route to fine dining, she was a teacher, a middle school teacher, and then went to culinary school and then ended up being a pastry chef at 11 Madison Park in New York. <laughs> so that's, that's the route serious. she took <laughs> from middle school teacher to EMP. Um, and then, and then ended up coming to Boise, Idaho with her husband because he got a job here. Hated Boise at first. Um, but has now found just like a home that she absolutely adores. Um, so she's still in Boise working at a really awesome restaurant there. Um, <clears throat> but so she, she and I worked together at this nonprofit called Create Common Good. And 
she was kind of like my first introduction into fine dining and not even fine dining, but she was also in charge of our school lunch menu and like making meals for, for kids and just the amount of effort and care and creativity that she put into these meals was outrageous. And like everything was obviously just out, absolutely delicious. Um, and so she, like that was just a really cool introduction to me. And um, as much as I loved working at a nonprofit, I, was, I wasn't doing a lot of like creative food making at that point. And I was like trying to decide what to do. Um, and so she was kind of a big inspiration for me to be like, all right, I, I, I do want to keep pursuing cooking and, and kind of um, refine my craft a little bit more that way. And um, <laughs> the, the thing that she always told me was just like, own your awesomeness. She's just like one of those really motivational people. And she was just always telling me like, you just got to like, be you, own your awesomeness, do your thing. Um, and so that was kind of what push me <laughs> to go into to cooking more seriously. Yeah, what were conversations like about Love Madison Park? I mean, you're talking about rated as best restaurant in the United States, one of the top in the world, and she's working there. And then you get on a similar path with multiple Michelin star restaurant type thing. Tell me about the conversations you guys maybe had where she was giving you some of the uh, glimpse behind the curtain of a place like Love Madison Park. I don't know that I even realized it. I mean, I definitely didn't realize what it was. And I think she was really good at like letting me make up my own mind about it. She didn't really tell me a whole lot. Like she didn't tell me like, don't do it. It's going to be terrible, <laughs> which I think is maybe what she might've wanted to tell me. Um, but she did just tell me like, be, be ready to like, um, it's really particular, uh, be really ready to um, work all the time. And at the time I, I think she was even married at the same time. And so she was just like, you know, be prepared for that, not seeing your partner ever. Um, so I, she was really good about not saying too much about it um, because I think she wanted to make, she wanted me to make up my own mind. Um, we've had more conversations now that we're both kind of out of, I mean, out of, not really that far out of fine dining. She's not actually out of fine dining at all, but um, out of that, world I guess we've had more conversations since then but um yeah <laughs> yeah it makes me think I about think that's what was inspiring the uh your your podcast copper and heat congratulations on the James Beard award unbelievable amazing Thank you. so yeah, unbelievable you, right <laughs> it's actually crazy I didn't even know that there was a best podcast James Beard and, uh, and I mean, I there like, isn't anymore. <laughs> oh, there you go. You got it. And and listening to your uh, your first season of Copper and Heat, Be a Girl, was really really interesting. Now I'm kind of like seeing a little bit of the picture where the influence that somebody like Michelle had, and just women in general in the kitchen. She was giving you a little bit of a glimpse, but not trying to deter you because it's challenging mm -hmm. to to a lot of the points that you make in the first season of the podcast is really challenging. And so very interested mm -hmm. in now kind of reflecting as, as you had season one, as you worked in that field, maybe give us a couple of the opportunities and a couple of the challenges you see reflecting on being a girl in, in a high-end kitchen. All of the challenges are also opportunities, which maybe sounds like a cop-out. <laughs> I love um, it. But... I think that's great. We're all about positivity <laughs> and like, 
turning problems into solutions. So I'm with you. Tell me more. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, there's, there's quite a few challenges, but I think, um, I mean, one of the big ones I, I think is just, I mean, I'm just going to generalize here. Toxic masculinity. We're just going to go with that one. Like that's, that's just one of the biggest issues. And I think that it's been talked about a lot, a lot, a lot. And I think, um, like I said, like that's a challenge, but I think it's also an opportunity for not only like women and femme presenting people in kitchens, but like all people who are in kitchens, because it's not just like, people who present traditionally feminine like I don't I don't think that that's the only people that it affects it definitely affects men as well and like I think that's one of the things kind of going through our first season I, I talked to a lot of my my guy friends who are in kitchens and how a lot of those toxic masculine traits affect them as well and in like pretty serious ways and so I as, as we talk about other issues with the industry, like, um, mental health and, um, benefits and like time off and all that kind of stuff. I, I think that a lot of it comes back to that, like toxic masculinity in kitchens and, you know, being tough and having to deal with your shit and don't cry, <laughs> like all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, we have a problem with yeah. tough guy, tough gal is what I call it. Like we're just trying so yeah. hard to be, impervious to all the bullets that fly at you in the industry mm -hmm. and it's not sustainable like it's just not like how no. many 60 65 year old line cooks do you know that are getting ready to retire from their lifelong career <laughs> in the kitchen it just doesn't exist you know you yeah. can't get your your pension and your gold watch working in a kitchen yeah. and so that's that's a, a challenge that we have to come to terms with and so i really like mm -hmm. the way that you're navigating it i also like the way that in your podcast you were you were unafraid to point out the issues of toxic masculinity masculinity as you put it however you also were very clear that there's an opportunity to have a conversation about it and do something about it and that that part is what i'm the most interested in with this platform of this podcast of your podcast of all the conversations we're having how do we evolve and redefine our mm -hmm. purpose because when I was coming up, getting a plate thrown in your head was a badge of honor. Now I realize it's toxic and stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and it also did instill a level of like, fuck you, I'm going to do it. Like determination in me as well. So it's polarizing mm -hmm. in that way. Like getting yelled mm -hmm. at can, can have a positive influence if done in a constructive mm -hmm. way. And, and so it's all about that balancing act. Have you seen now any any ways that you're trying to have those type of conversations with people as you get asked these type of questions as somebody who's an anthropologist looking at this from a community and culture <laughs> standpoint? Yeah. And I think as I'm having these conversations, I'm, I'm trying to take it more as an anthropologist in that I'm like, instead of trying to push a point and be like, Hey, what you're doing is wrong. Hey, what you're doing sucks. Like, obviously I am trying to make some kind of point in the conversations and in um, the episodes that we're doing, but I, I also want to go into it with like the why, like asking why and getting to the root of why and and talking more about that because I think um I think everybody has more in common than 
um, we like to think we do sometimes. And I think getting to the root cause and the root like thoughts behind things um, is kind of how we're going to make some real change is to understand why people are doing things the way they are. And, um, and just when you ask a why question, like, oh, that's interesting. Like, why do you think that? I think it, it kind of disarms people um, rather than puts their defenses up to be like, well, what the fuck do you know? Like, don't tell me what to do <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so I, I try to approach it that way. I'm not always successful. I, sometimes I will like, I, <laughs> I let things slip and I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. But, um, but for the most part, that's how I try and approach things. And I think that's something that anybody can do like sitting in a bar after work sometime and like so somebody says a comment that you don't really like like oh that's interesting comment that you just made there like huh why do you think that i think that's an interesting way to just start having those conversations katie i gotta I tell you i love everything you're saying because you know, as we've talked about the whole hey yeah you know let's just between us nobody else is listening i'm really digging what you're saying here so I mean, the whole thesis of this show, the reason that this, this crazy thing exists is because I really want us to focus and value why and who before what and how. We get so chummed up in the minutia of what we do and how we do it, thinking that that's what really defines us in this industry. Mm -hmm. It's just the end mm -hmm. product. It's, ju it's mm -hmm. just the, the, the thing that's tactile, but the, the humans, the why and the who is so, so important. So I am with you 100%. Mm -hmm. And part of it is just acknowledgement. <laughs> like this podcast is very therapeutic for me because sometimes to the point you're making, like, I get kind of preachy. It's like, what are you talking about? That's wrong. This is right. And it's not true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just not true. It's what I believe. It's what I think. It's what I'm trying to put out in the world. But this podcast is about slowing down and just acknowledging people, creating the opportunity mm -hmm. for conversations about people, about why we get out of bed in the morning and then be mm -hmm. able to have that influence the way that we're interacting with each other to then be able to have the more meaningful conversation to the point I made earlier, like you want to get a point across to me, feed me, like let's sit down and break bread <laughs> and have a conversation. And I think that's some of the themes that we're kind of talking about here. And, and I, man, I really appreciate the fact that that is something at the forefront of what you're trying to accomplish as well. Oh yeah. Well, thanks. I think, it's been really interesting because, I mean, I'm from Idaho. As some people would argue, it's the Midwest. I would say it's not. But there are a lot of, like, there are a lot of restaurants in the Midwest. Like, not all of the restaurants are these big gastropubby kind of places in the big cities on the coast. And being here for the last, here in the Bay Area for the last five years, like, I think sometimes that's forgotten it's forgotten like how many other people there are in the restaurant industry. Like the restaurant industry is huge and there's so many different kinds of people in the restaurant industry and to actually make a meaningful change. Like we can't just go in and be like, Hey, this is what we've discovered works in San Francisco. And that's most definitely not what's going to work in, in Idaho or like in North Dakota or something like that. Like it's, it's, very different and so actually having those conversations understanding like what are the issues in these different places having it be a more localized um conversation i think is really important understanding where it comes from so it makes yeah. a lot of sense <laughs> to me people at every level of the industry matter like they truly mm -hmm. fucking matter and i think the more that mm -hmm. we acknowledge that and acknowledge them the more opportunity we have because there's going to be 
people at every level, at people at different points in their own lives, people at different parts of the country, culturally mm-hmm. connected, different to food across the world, all of it. I'm with you 100%. Yep. Okay. Now, <laughs> the most <Uh-oh>. important <laughs> part of the show, uh, get ready. The most important okay. function of this show is for us to acknowledge again, and we like to call it nominate one of our unsung hospitality heroes, somebody that really means something to us that we want to have get a little bit of recognition for the impact that they've had on us personally, the industry as a whole, who then gets to be on your episode, who then down the road gets their own episode. (laughs) They shout out somebody else and on and on we pay it for the industry. One of the ways that I believe we can actually show how interconnected to your point, we have more similarities than differences. So give it to us. Who is your nominee for one of your unsung hospitality heroes? Yeah, um, this this woman I, w- I worked with at a restaurant um, before I worked at Manresa here in the Bay Area. Her name's Edelyn Garcia. Uh, she was my sous chef, um, and it was my first, oh, it was the externship that I took out, out of culinary school. And um, Edelyn was, I mean, she is a badass. <laughs> she kicks ass. And um, she's still working in the area. She's an executive sous chef at the Village Pub. Um, in Woodside, and she, I just remember, um, I was brand new out of culinary school, this was my first job, it was a, a one Michelin star restaurant down down in the south um, San Francisco Bay, and I was terrified, um, because the chef also had, he was like, uh, had a reputation of being kind of terrifying, and so I was terrified, and um Edelyn was really stern, but really kind and willing to teach. And so she just made that experience so much better than um, I was honestly expecting it to be. Uh, and since then, um, she was in our, our the first season of Copper and Heat, and we had some really, really awesome conversations about being um, being a woman and in restaurants because I mean she's been doing this for a really long time and um and she just continues to kick ass and I I think we had some really interesting and important conversations around around gender in the kitchen and we just continued to have conversations and kind of uh I don't know keep up keep up with each other because I mean she's got a lot going on in, in her life right now a lot going on in her career and same with me and it's just been really nice to have somebody to like bounce things off of and you know understand what's happening in my life and yeah so she's just awesome and so yeah Unsung well said <laughs> so being mentored and connected to strong women within the industry outside the industry is clearly a, a a thread across your whole life and and now I think you're trying to also be that for other women so I'm really really inspired by the empowerment that that you're pushing in the conversations that you're having why is it so important to have that type of mentorship within the industry because I want everyone listening to be a mentor to find a mentor to not have to fake it till you make it, to not have to be a tough guy, tough gal, like all of the things, Mm -hmm. the dynamics we've talked about, why mentorship is so important to you. Yeah, I think it's just really important to have somebody to 
bounce those ideas off of. And I mean, like Michelle, just kind of like letting me, like giving me just enough information for it to be empowering for me to do what I wanted, but also being there when like shit was real <laughs> and I needed somebody to talk to about it. Like same with Michelle, same with Adeline, like they've both been that for me. And so I think having somebody that can be like your support um, and can really encourage you and like has been through it before is really, really important. Um, and like, I've had that not like, obviously I've had a lot of really strong, awesome women in my life that have mentored me, but I also have like a lot of dude friends that have been really great. And that for me as well. Um, and so I think, yeah, just having any sort of mentor that, um, hopefully is there, they're, they're there to like empower and encourage you not to like tear you down. So find that, that kind of person in your yep. life. And, and so, some of us dudes in the industry, we're okay. Right. We're all right. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. A, a, amazing conversation. We always like to end with uh, some words to live by a little quote, a little mantra. Speaking of, of some cool dudes, one of the best ever ever you quoted the dalai lama that guy i'd listen to anything that guy says he could read the phone book I'd be, I'd be into it he'd make it funny and deep so he says and then and then you're echoing be kind whenever possible it is always possible what does that mean to you mm -hmm. i think there's a difference between being kind and being nice people are called out for not you're you're not being nice right now. Um, and I think that kind of invalidates um, some righteous anger that is going on. So I think, um, I mean, I think women get it a lot. I think women and people of color get it even more um, and get like called out for being too angry or being too loud about an issue. I think that's not what I'm talking about. I don't know. If, I don't know if this is what the Dalai Lama was talking about, but this is what I'm talking about. Like that's being nice like the veneer of niceness and being like quiet and soft-spoken being kind i think is being empathetic and approaching any conversation like trying to understand the other side and um you know compassion and but still standing up for and voicing your opinions and your beliefs and still being able to stand up for yourself and for others who are marginalized. So I think that's what I mean, like be kind. And I think it's always possible to be kind. I just, I don't think it's always um, possible to be nice. And I don't think it's um, productive to be nice. <laughs> um, but I'm also like, I don't know, I'm kind of the poster child of always being too nice. Everybody tells me that all the time. I've gotten it a lot <laughs> that I'm too nice. Um, but I would say that I am kind. And if I need to kind of like um, whip shit out and whip people into shape, I will do it. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm talking about is being empathetic and compassionate in talking to people and in dealing with people and understanding where they're coming from. I think the Dalai Lama would be very proud of that description of what it <laughs> what it means to you. Even the fact that you're kind of uh, uh, grappling with it a little bit uh, is important yeah. because I think being reflective in every moment is important as as we continue to evolve as you know, these these crazy animals that are human beings. Katie, I appreciate you being <laughs> on the show. 
big fan of everything that you're doing. People need to uh, be paying more attention to the humans in hospitality. And clearly that is a mission of yours. We are simpatico when it comes to that. Thank you for being on the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Cheers. And we're back, everybody, talking with Edelyn Garcia, who is one of Katie's unsung hospitality heroes. I am actually originally from um, the countryside of the Philippines. I was born in Pauay, in Locos Norte, Philippines. Um, so right in like the province, um, I was actually able to visit there when I was about 23 years old. And uh, we stayed at my grandma's house, so just right out looking out the window. Rice patties right there. So coming from uh, definitely humble beginnings. I did, however, come to, the, to uh, America when I was two and a half years old um, and basically grew up in Santa Clara, California. Amazing. The Philippines have been coming up a lot. Carlo <laughs> La Magna, who's a chef and just opened Magna Cucina, a Filipino mm-hmm. spot in Portland, was on the show early on. We just had Randall Broad, who's was part of the Not Your Lola's group, and he's opening a place called Tagay, which means cheers in, in Tagalog. I'm pretty sure I butchered that pronunciation, but uh, no, you in, pretty good, yeah. in, Dallas, <laughs> in Dallas, Texas. So I've been loving it. I've been talking. Been, I actually made adobo like right after Randall's uh, episode. I was just inspired. So I'm, I'm excited that the Philippines are getting some love. Much yeah. deserved, much needed. <laughs> Very cool. Tell us your first job in the industry. When, where, how old? old. <laughs> Pretty funny. So my, um, if we want to get really technical and talk about first food and beverage job, um, I got a job at a retirement home when I was uh, 16 years old. I was like 16 going on 17. Um, in Santa Clara, it was a retirement home called Via Serena. And wow, that was an experience. These, the residents were hilarious. They would try to ask me for alcohol, um, play all kinds of jokes. It was definitely a good learning experience. Um, first time ever serving and we weren't able to write anything down. So we had to remember a lot. Uh, some of these residents had a lot of, um, you know, health things that we needed to advise and little requests that they would always ask for. Um, but yeah, that was fun. But my first cooking job was actually at um, Google working under Bon Appetit. And it was my, uh, my externship for culinary school. I like it. The pranksters in their old age. I, I could see that t- potentially <laughs> turning you off to food. You're like, this is totally crazy. Like, uh, <laughs> and then Google, I'm very interested in that. We're going to put a pin in that because uh, mm-hmm. not only will we talk about that in your episode, but I'm also fascinated in the different ways in which we can contribute to the hospitality food and beverage industry. And I, I would just talk to Michael Passmore from Passmore Ranch, who's a caviar a maker in Northern California. And uh, he talked a little bit about Google kitchens and I was super fascinated. So I am excited. I'm getting pumped up about your episode for sure. Cause I want to learn about that. Now tell us what you are working on currently. I currently work as the executive sous chef at a restaurant called The Village Pub in Woodside, California. Um, so being the executive chef, I'm the second in command. Um, I've been there for almost about two and a half years. 
Um, currently, right now, we are um, in the midst of our menu change. So we're transitioning from our winter to our spring uh, menu change, and it's it's quite the process. <laughs> There's been a lot of uh, a tinkering and a lot of experimentation that we've had to do. I've actually, um, on my days off, um, was tinkering a lot at home just to make sure that you know we got this certain component right on our soup, which is uh, the foam or the air that we wanted on our soup. So, you know, I do a lot of work from home just to, to make sure that I got a lot of stuff dialed in. It's kind of hard sometimes, um, you know, being a manager in a very high stress, high demand kitchen, we're super busy. Um, so I try to focus on making sure that my team is good. Um, so sometimes, you know, time kind of gets away from us and we kind of get caught doing stuff at home. <laughs> Yeah, people matter, and that level of dedication, that's what it takes sometimes. Any Filipino influence anywhere on that menu? Did you did you sneak there, it in? There is not. Um, our restaurant not, is... Not yet, um, not yet. Not yet. We'll see. It's very influenced by uh, French, French techniques, um, like Italian, Spanish flavors is what, uh, you know, our restaurant likes to, to focus on. Um, but we got a new chef de cuisine who is from the South, so... He's bringing in a lot of cool ingredients and techniques from from that region. So, totally pumped about that. Hey, I mean, there's a lot of Spanish influence in Filipino food. Just saying. You are absolutely you, right. You keep push. You keep pushing for it. It's going to become a mainstream American any day now because it deserves a place at the table. All right, tell us about Katie Osuna. We had a great conversation. She obviously is so compelled by human stories, being an anthropologist. I thought that was fascinating. Talk to us about those, those early days, working with a completely green Katie, and, and give us maybe some stories, some isms. We love isms on this show, but talk to us about Katie. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> I think I remember. No, I do. I really do remember this. Uh, she was, she did her uh, Stage, when, when she did her stage with us, she worked on Garmage and she started off on the canopy station, but she was helping um, cut some chives. And I remember walking over to her and looking at her chives and picking them up and, you know, kind of inspecting them in my hand. It's those little, um, those little things that people don't really pay attention to. Like, I always like to pay attention to, to detail. And some people think chives, you know, you're just chopping away. But no, I really look to make sure that your cuts are, are you know, even and that you're not just hacking away at it because that shows me that you are pay, paying attention to what you're doing and it's not just, you know, this minuscule thing. Um, so I remember doing that and I kind of felt this like, oh, oh my God, what is she doing? <laughs> Am I doing this right? But I didn't say anything. I just kind of walked away. Um, she was panicked. Yeah, she, I think she kind of was like, "Uh oh." <laughs> but you know, watching her in the kitchen, you know, she was she was pretty quiet. But every time that I looked over, she was always working, and I know that she was hyper focused, and I loved that um, about her. I remember we would put um, what was it, fig leaves, on a certain pedestal for for the canapes, and she had run out. And so when we, when that happens, we would have to go outside and um, cut, we had a, 
a grape, like a grapevine that would um, grow like in the front of the restaurant. And I remember she ran out there and, and cut some down and no one ever told her to do that. <laughs> she just kind of figured, out, figured it out on her own. And I, I really appreciated that she took that initiative to you know, find a way to fix her problem and not like panic. Um, I remember that was a really, a really cool thing that I saw from her. Um, but she did a great job. And I remember when she was leaving, I was super sad. Um, you know, already there was, it's, it's really um, rare that you see a lot of females in like the higher end kitchens. So it was great to see like her being a strong person, you know, just leave. Not just Lee, but she was, you know, she was going on to do bigger, better things uh, going to Manaresa. So I was super proud of her. Yeah, clearly that, that was a, a topic we talked about quite a bit with, you know, our first season, be a girl of the podcast and just navigating that space. And, and she was great with shouting out yourself and, and other women that haven't had an impact on her. Talk to us about that a little bit, like seeing what she's doing in that respect where she's, you know, taking, taking the fucking bull by the horns and saying, we're going to have this conversation. It's important. And oh, seeing her do that, like, what does that mean to you? Knowing that you're a part of that story. It's been, it's been really um, eye-opening. Um, you know, the, the change that she's trying to make and really believing in it. I admire that so much about her and the fact that she's been giving people this voice um, to shed light on things. Um, people don't like to talk about these things and it's because it makes them uncomfortable. And, you know, I, I always tell, something that I tell my cooks is, I want you to be comfortable being uncomfortable because, you know, that's what's gonna make you a stronger person and make you open your, eye, open your eyes to, think, to things that you, you normally wouldn't look at. Um, I think right now we're facing times where you know, dealing with emotions is um, being talked about more, which I think is great. Um, Katie's such a, she's such a hard worker and her perseverance and, and giving a great amount of effort to anything she's trying to pursue is, is awesome. And it's so inspiring and, and it inspires me to, you know, keep pushing as well. Um, she's been doing like a lot of traveling and she's doing like other side things too, like helping out, um, you know, her, her past employer opened up another, another place and, oh my goodness, I don't know when that girl sleeps. <laughs> she clearly, she does not. I really <laughs> like what you said and every young cook or somebody in culinary school who's listening to this, be comfortable being uncomfortable. It's gonna be uncomfortable. It just okay. is. It's gonna be hard. It's going to be more than you expected it's it's going to be all those things and i i think that's a really really important sentiment i love hearing you say that for sure and being able to have these conversations is is really important because we don't like to have much conversations we put our head down and we work and then we go and get fucked up after work and like pretend like you know everything is all good and it is a lot of times and sometimes it's not and it's okay when it's not and i think that's an important thing so i like that sentiment if we get better at being comfortable with being uncomfortable i'm going to say that again and again and again to people thank you for that little tidbit i do i want to take you back because we're flowing but i to tell everybody a little peek behind the scenes like when 
So my guest is speaking. I mute the microphone so you don't hear me awkwardly breathing in the background. However, <laughs> I was just like laughing and smiling and like fist pumping when you're talking about chives because it's literally something that is my bedrock. It is my Paul Bocuse fry me an egg is called the chive test. And I've given it to hundreds of people over the years. And, uh, and actually, if you want, Edelyn, listen to the episode that came out last week with Christian Wilhoff, who actually surprised me and said, you and the chive test had a huge impact on me. And I have a saying that it's as important the way you slice chives is how you sear foie gras. Because I think we spend too much time like putting certain things on pedestals and not giving a shit about other things, including mm -hmm. people, right? Chives and people, like that's my whole mission right now. <laughs> and the chive test was like famous. It was literally, you slice these chives, I will offer you a job on the spot and I will pay you whatever you want to get paid. And out of 200 and something people, maybe it was more, like two people ever passed it. Because, oh, oh wow. yeah. Because it was like a litmus test for everything that you think is important in the kitchen. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's 2,500 other things that are just as important that you're not thinking about. And so it was like very psychological, had way less to do with the actual technique, even though it had a lot to do with the actual technique. So my God, thank you for that. And I totally hijacked that story right now, but it was just so compelling to me because the chive test was something so fundamental. And so I love that you're checking out chives. People. Pay attention to the chives. Ah, I love it. I absolutely love it. Now, uh, the relationship with Katie uh, these days, I mean, you were on her podcast and getting to kind of share that. What, what's that like? Or even this experience being on this podcast, to have an opportunity to kind of share some stories and share some voices that, there's that, that there is that chance now where five years ago, 10 years ago, hell, 15 years ago, never would have happened. Like literally only a handful of the chef would ever be able to lend their voice to anything. But people at every level matter. So give us a little context for you to be able to share your voice and, uh, and talk with Katie, talk on this podcast about Katie. What's that like for you? <laughs> I, love the, I love the giggle. Tell us. <laughs> It is, oh man, it's opened up a lot of, a lot of doors for me and opened up my eyes to kind of what I want my purpose to be, what, what I want my legacy to be um, in the sense of helping pave the way for, for women um, in the industry and just to give them that confidence to lift them up. Um, you know, the first time that Katie had asked me if I wanted to be a part of it, I was a little skeptical, um, only because for, for, for an instant, I, I felt like I didn't have too much to say, or I didn't ever think about it. I didn't ever think about what it was to be a woman in the industry, and um, if I could even make an impact. But the more I thought about it, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is your chance to to help inspire people to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. Um, maybe to help those people that are maybe in a rut or can't, you know, find the, the strength or the inspiration to, you know, help them keep going. Um, so I definitely want to make a change in that. And I, I, I hold this kind of like responsibility to kind of just be a better role model and a better example. Uh, for women, but not only just women, I mean, just 
people who work in the industry in general. Edelin, I am so pumped <laughs> to get a full episode in with you because I know it's going to be amazing. I clearly understand why Katie wanted you to be on her episode. Edelin Garcia, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.